Amen. Well, the Bible, and both throughout the Bible, in the Old Testament and New, from Genesis to Revelation, uh, we are constantly reminded that God's people are to live radically different lives uh, than those who are not. We're to think differently, we're to speak differently, we're to behave differently. We are to love what the world hates, we are to hate what the world loves. Uh, We are to live just distinctly different lives from, from those who do not believe. One of the greatest examples of that type of living that we have was in the life of the Apostle Paul. In fact, he's the writer of the book of Colossians. And, and in these few verses that I read to you earlier, in these verses, we actually find uh, two principles that, that Paul always seemed to live by throughout his entire life in ministry. And these principles by which he lived are radically different by the principles by which the, the world, the lost world, ultimately lives their life. Now, the Apostle Paul and us, there, there's differences, there's similarities, yet differences between us and him. For once, he wa- for one, he uh, was an apostle, uh, which means that he lived during the time of Christ. He was set apart, uh, hand-chosen by Jesus himself, and he was also given a very distinct, very clear, very unique ministry for Paul to fulfill. And that was, in essence, to be one of the first to take the gospel to the Gentile world. So we, you and I, are not apostles. Every once in a while you'll run across somebody who refers to themselves as an apostle. But in the clear biblical sense, you and I cannot be uh, apostles because we didn't live during the time of Christ. However, there are some similarities between us and, and he. First of all, we're followers of Jesus Christ. We have been chosen by him for salvation. Amen. And not only that, but we have been given a very specific, very certain mission for us to fulfill. Does anybody know what that is? The Great Commission, right? To go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. That is a calling, clear calling for all of us who are in here today and claim to be believers in Jesus Christ. And so what we want to do is, is what I want to remind you of, and this passage reminds us of that, is that those principles then that Paul is living by are ought to be the same principles that you and I as followers of Christ ought to seek to live by. But my warning to you is they are radically different than the way in which the rest of the world lives. Now, this morning, we're going to be taking of the Lord's Supper, as you can see. And so uh, what I wanted to do, I I looked at the next passage in 1 Samuel, and it was just too long. I was like, no way I'm getting through this in, in that a lot of time. But my heart began to drift to Colossians and begin to study this and so this is what we want to do before we take the Lord's Supper, hopefully succinctly, painlessly, unless the Lord wants it to be painful. Uh, we're going to go ahead and we're going to work through this. And I want to show you these two principles that both you, just a reminder that you and I are to be living by every day. Two principles radically different than the principles by which the world lives. First of all, we are called to live a life, now note this, of suffering, not ease. We are to live a life of suffering not ease. Look at, if you will, in verse 24. Paul, Paul wrote, he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up with what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Paul makes an astounding statement right here. He says that the suffering, that is the beatings that he took on the cross and his death at the crucifixion, he says it was lacking. 
Now, I, I hope to clarify that for you. Let me tell you, first of all, what he is not saying. He is not suggesting that Jesus' death and his suffering on the cross lacked anything necessary for your and my salvation. Can I get an amen on that, right? That, that there was nothing lacking at all in, in, in him fulfilling the complete and utter requirements of, of God's justice for us. What he, in essence, would say, even though it doesn't sound like it here, is that his suffering on the cross was enough to satisfy, it was sufficient to satisfy the righteous wrath of God towards sinners, towards you and me. And that is good news. But what it did not satisfy is the wrath of God's enemies towards Christ. And what I mean by that is this, is that when Christ's enemies got him onto the cross and got their hands on him and began to beat him and begin to flog him and begin to put a crown of thorns on his head and begin to mock him, at the point of his death, they weren't satisfied. Their anger wasn't relieved. It wasn't sufficient enough to take away their anger. In fact, their anger burned just as great that upon his death and ever, after having beat him after he was dead than when they had first began. Think of it this way. They could have crucified Jesus a million times over a million years, and they still wouldn't have been satisfied. Their anger still would have raged. That's how much hatred an unbelieving world has for the person of Jesus Christ. And that same anger not only existed then, it continues to persist in the world in which we live today. Same thing. But there's a problem. Jesus' physical body no longer is here, is it? His physical body's not here. Where is it? He ascended from the grave, and now he's seated at the right hand of the Father. So you've got this world who has all this anger burning within them, but no body to be able to take it out on. That is no express physical body of Jesus Christ, but there is another body that he mentions here. What is that? The church. The church is not just one particular church. It refers to all believers of all time everywhere. So now what Paul is suggesting is that this world who hated Jesus were not satisfied by just putting him to death. Now that same world that exists today wants to take their anger out on the body of Christ. That is the church here amongst us. And Paul says, guess what? That which was lacking in Christ, I am now filling up with. He's suffering. And we know that because within the context, he is in prison as he's writing this letter chained between two Praetorian guards. So he is suffering on behalf of this. And here's the crazy kicker about this. He's kind of excited about the whole thing. All right, now I don't know about you, but I go through mild suffering, and I'm never excited to go through any type of suffering, are you? In fact, most of the time I find myself complaining about it, whining about it, my aches and pains and my difficulties and all that. Here he is, he's rejoicing over his suffering. Now the question is, why? Well, before we can really answer the question why, we have to answer the question what. That is, what kind of suffering is he rejoicing over? I think you know as well as I do there's different types of suffering. Would you agree? I mean, there is a suffering that we experience just by showing up and living on this world because this world is broken. You know, there are children that die every day in this world. There are people who die in, 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 uh, of cancer. There are people who, who uh, of no fault of their own, are swept away 
with, with tidal waves and, and, and die uh, in, in storms and tornadoes and hurricanes. But, but those people who are dying are not dying expressly or specifically or directly because of a consequence of their own sin. They're just, this death is occurring because we live in a broken world. We, we all identify that, yes? Yes? Uh, okay, good. All right, suffering is not your favorite subject, I can tell. Uh, second type of suffering is, is that the type of suffering that we bring on our own. Now, I know this very well. Uh, this is the type of suffering that is caused by our own foolish decisions, our own rebellion with God. We, we do the wrong thing, sometimes willfully do the right thing, and we pay the consequences of that. We suffer the outcome of, of our specific sin. Sometimes we suffer it for generations, for the rest of our lives, because of decisions that we've made long ago. Well, here's what Paul's saying. He's not rejoicing over either one of those types of sin, or, or those types of rejoicing. Those types of things. He, he's not suggesting that the suffering of the world, children dying, he wouldn't, he's not rejoicing over that. He's, he's not rejoicing over the consequence of his own sin or anybody else's consequence for sin. Instead, there's a third type of suffering that we experience, we ought to experience as believers in Jesus Christ, and that is suffering for righteousness' sake. And that's exactly what was happening to Paul. Paul is in prison not because he took somebody's Nikes. He, he is he's in prison because he was obedient to do what Jesus Christ had called him to do. He is suffering in prison because he took the gospel and preached the gospel faithfully to the Gentile people, to the Colossians as well. And that's why he finds himself in prison. And while in prison, instead of moaning and groaning, he is rejoicing in that imprisonment. Now, why? Why? Why would you rejoice? Because, look, all of us have done the right thing and had something negative happen to us because we look around going, man, why are we suffering for this? We did the right thing, and now we're being punished with it, and there's a lot of questioning. We, we begin to become angry with it, disgruntled with it, discontented with it, questioning God. Paul's not doing any of that. Instead, he rejoices in his suffering. Here's two reasons why. Number one, and we see it within the text of Scripture, is because it identifies him with the person of Christ. In other words, it assures him that he's in Christ. He says, I'm filling up with the afflictions that were lacking in Christ. In other words, he says, this is evidence that I'm truly in the faith, that Jesus Christ is truly in me. The Bible teaches us that, that in Matthew chapter 10, verse 25, it promises us that we will suffer for righteousness' sake. The Bible says a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. If they persecuted me, they will likewise persecute you. This is the type of persecution that we go through, not because of disobedience, but because we are being obedient to him. And it's identified, you know, a lot of people, especially young people, they struggle with whether they're truly born again. If you ever walked with your, your, your daughter or, or, or your child and they go, I'm struggling with whether I'm truly in the faith. And for so long, I think we, we as the church have done a poor job of navigating people through that. Because it's not just young people, it's adults as well that struggle. Am I, am I truly born again? And, and sometimes we, we pull out this, well, did you walk an aisle? Do you remember the time, date, and hour that you got saved and you opened up your heart to, to Jesus and gave your life to Jesus? Well, yes, well then, well, then you're saved, you're good to go. Now, but the problem with that is that's not objective, true objective evidence that a person is born again. The scriptures say, many will say, Lord, Lord. And he says, but I will say, depart from me, for I never knew you. He says, there's got to be some kind of other objective. You know what it is? Objective truth and evidence that a person has been born again is when they are willing to go through even the greatest of sufferings, all in obedience to their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
for them to be able to sit back and say, you know what, there's something more important for me than temporal comfort in this life. And what's better for me than temporal comfort in satisfying my flesh is the person of Jesus Christ. And so in their obedience, they now suffer. This is who Paul was. This is who God has called us to. So he's rejoicing because his suffering identifies that he's truly in the faith. There's a second reason why he rejoices is because he's suffering for the good of other people. He says it right there in the very first part. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Now, this is radically different than the world in which we live, isn't it? The world says what? Look after number one. Hey, buddy, if you don't look after yourself, there ain't nobody else going to look after you. Now, that doesn't mean the people of the world aren't willing to be benevolent, willing to be able to give, willing to be able to help those people who are hurting. But there's a limitation to that, is there not? There's a limitation where somebody says, I'll help as long as it doesn't cost me too much. The believer in Jesus Christ says, I want to serve and I want to help to the betterment of other people, for the good of other people at great expense to myself. Now, what in the world does that look like? Well, I think there's different ways. I think of young people, and and here's kind of a quick example. I think of the young person, and this really doesn't change. When you're a young person and you were at school and you were in the group, remember the group? You always want to be a part of the group. Anyone remember the group, right? You want to be a part of the group. And if you were with the group, you may not have really been a part of the group, but as long as you were close with them, you kind of felt protected. It's kind of like zebras in Africa. Right, you know, they're like, hey man, there's safety in numbers, and as long as I'm part of this group, I'm safer than if I'm out there with a lion alone. And so you kind of like, you know, suck up and you're real close, and people may not want you there, but you kind of get close to them anyway. Yeah, I'm in the group. Because there's safety there. Here's why. Because the moment that somebody walks by, some poor guy walks by or girl walks by, all of a sudden, this group decides to gang up on that individual. You, You with me on this? This doesn't change much, even in adulthood. And as soon as they begin to jump on this believer that's amongst this group, he's got a choice. Am I going to sit there and be quiet, and life's going to go easy for me, or I'm going to speak up for this poor guy, and then all of a sudden, what's going to happen? All of their anger and their making fun of and all their whatever is now going to be poured out on me. You with me on that? And so there you go. You've got a choice. When that young person goes over and he stands in the way between himself and that other person, and they begin to berate him, guess what? In essence, that's an aspect of suffering for righteousness' sake and suffering for the good of another person, right? right? That's, that's kind of what it ultimately looks like there. You know, some would sit there and go, well, Christians, where do you get this foolish idea? To be able to suffer for somebody else and not be able to look after your own self and your own family first and put others first why, wh- wh- what's that all about? Where, where in the world would you come up with such a cockamamie idea as that? Well, Jesus, the gospel, this is precisely what Jesus Christ did, is it not? The, the scriptures tell us in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, it says, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. Here's where I want you to understand. When you come and you, you give, and you give, and, in order, and, and by your giving, it takes away from something from you that you're not able to be able to have because of your giving, that is in a level of sacrifice. When you come and you serve one another, and wherever it might be, even if it's in a place where nobody else dared to be able to go, nursery with the little children, nobody dares go there, 
if you go there and you sit there and go, man, this is going to come at great cost to me in many different ways, and you do it, you're never more like Christ than suffering for other people by giving for the betterment of other people. There was a um, Adonair Jumpson, many of you may have known him, and he proves not only that he lived a life of suffering, but showed what a difference of, of suffering actually made. Uh, he was a man who went to Burma. Many of you probably know him as a missionary, a very famous missionary. And he went to Burma and for his first seven years did not go well, to say the least, all right? This is a great book, great, great biography for you to be able to get and to be able to read. When he goes there, he almost dies time and time again from starvation and from disease. And at one particular point, he's thrown into prison for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's there in a Burmese uh, uh, um, a prison for 17 months. He's in here, and he experiences afflictions like you can't even imagine, and is beaten, and his body is left with scars, not only from the beatings, but also from the chains that were on his hands and on his wrists. Well, the moment that he gets out, guess what he chooses to do? He wants to go back and continue to share the gospel, what got him there in the first place. And he asks some authorities if he could go to a particular province and he could preach the gospel. And this is what he was told by those leaders. He says, my people are not fools enough to listen to anything a missionary might say. He says, but I will not allow you to go. He says, because I fear that they might be impressed by your scars and turn to your religion. Let me, let me just, let me say this and make sure that we're abundantly clear. Because I think sometimes we need to have these little powwows. It's not enough to be able to speak a good game as a believer in Jesus Christ and talk about giving and going and sacrificing and serving and how much we love Jesus. It only means something, and radically, when the gospel is combined with you and I's willingness to suffer for the sake of the gospel, that's when we begin to see people radically change. That's the danger. Not a bunch of people who are willing to be able to speak a gospel, but not live by it, but live by it according to a great expense to themselves. This is, we are not called to a life of ease. We are not called to be able to come to a church, and I'm always nervous, every time somebody comes to celebration and basically asks, so what do you guys have to offer me? We're sitting there going, but you're in the wrong place, man. I'm just telling you right now. Because what I feel like doing is taking an an ad out in the paper and saying something to this effect. If you want to suffer and sacrifice and give for no one but the glory of God, then please come. Celebration is a church for you. The problem is we probably wouldn't have many takers, right? But this is the very call of God's people. The call to suffer, suffering, not of ease. There's a second thing, and this second point is all we have. Second thing, we are called to live a life of stewardship, not excess. Excess. Stewardship, not excess. Now, Paul continues in verse 25, and he writes, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. My mis- the, the, the mystery hidden from ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Now, let me unpack that for you. Paul considers himself to be a steward. Do you know what that is? It's a servant who is entrusted with the goods of his master. They're not his own, but entrusted with the goods of his master. And he is to use it to promote promote the purposes of his master. Not his own. Not to do with it whatever he wants to be able to do. Not to be able to use them on himself. But to be able to promote the purposes 
of his master. Paul says, I view myself, I view myself as a steward of the Most High God who has given me a mission. Now, what was his mission? He says it here. He says to be able to make the word of God fully known. But then he speaks about the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. What is he talking about there? Let's track with me just for a minute. I'm going to let you know what the mystery is, all right? That, that people didn't know for all the Old Testament. Here it is. Remember, go back to the Old Testament. God chooses a man by the name of Abraham. Do you remember this? And he makes a promise to Abraham. And he makes a covenant to Abraham. And he says to him, he says, I'm going to make your family a great nation. They're going to number the, more than the, sea, the, the sands of the seashore, the stars in the sky. Here's the promise that he has for them. So God blesses and brings in his, his descendants into a covenant relationship with him. And this group of people and this group of people alone, out of all the people in the world, are now able to come and experiencing the true blessings of being in a relationship with God. But only these people, nobody else. So the Jewish people, there was a little bit of confusion there. So their belief was the rest of the world was going to basically burn in Hades. They were going to burn in hell. Why? Because they're outside of the covenant relationship with God. But here was the confusion. If they went back to the promise that God had made of Abraham, that's where they're confused. Yes, God promised to make them of a great nation, but he also promised this, that through all the other nations of the world, through you, all the other nations will be blessed, not just Israel. So they didn't understand how this was going to work. How did these, un, these people who rest outside of a covenant relationship with God, how do they ever come and experience the blessings of being in a relationship with God? Through the whole Old Testament, they don't get it at all. New Testament comes and everything changes. How does God bless the rest of the nations? By making a new covenant. The old covenant was this. You want a relationship with God? You have to be born Jewish. That's the way for you ultimately to be able to be in a relationship with God. New covenant, you want to be in a relationship with God? You have to be born again. doesn't matter where you're from, what background you have, the color of your skin. If you will repent and you will place your faith on the completed work of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, whoever, no matter where they are, no matter what, all the worlds of the Gentiles, all the people of the Gentiles, if they will do that, then they will enter in to this relationship with God. And so that is the mystery. And Paul says, I'm a steward, and God has given me a mission to be able to take that truth and to be able to propagate it to all those who once were outside, but now they have an opportunity to be in, to the Gentile world. And here's what he says. Just follow with me just for a moment. He says in verse 27, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now stop and think about how wonderful this message would have been to the Gentile world. They were, for, for throughout all history, outsiders. One of the greatest pictures of this is in the temple of the Old Testament. Do you remember this? Where were the Gentiles allowed to go in the temple mount? Nowhere, basically. God resided with, there in the Holy of Holies, within the holy place, and then there were different courtyards around it. Guess who was way out in left field? The Gentiles. They were where the Jews were storing all of their dirty, filthy animals that they were going to keep to be able to sacrifice unto God. They were outside. They had no way of coming close to God or having a relationship with God. And now those little words, he says, Christ in you. He's saying, here's the good news for them. Those people who used to be outside, God through his death has broken all those barriers down 
And now, not only are they able to be in the presence of God, but now the presence of God comes and lives inside of them. Don't you think for a bunch of outsiders, that was probably pretty good news? It was. And this is what he says that he was entrusted with. This is the message that he was ultimately entrusted with. And so what we find is he sits there and he says, so verse 28, notice, he says, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. In the beginning of this, he called himself the steward. Here's what he decided. God had given him a mission, but he had also given him gifts and talents. And his mission in life was to take all, as a steward of God, was to take all the gifts, all the abilities that God has given him, and to use it to fulfill the express purpose that God had called him to, to take the gospel and make what was unknown now known to a lost and dying world. Now, this was a man who had, who had incredible giftedness and talents, did he not? Let, let's just take one, his intellect. One of the most intelligent men on earth who was ever born was the Apostle Paul. He was a man who had such intellect that he would argue and take on the greatest minds in the world and he would win. He was so intelligent and so well-versed in what he believed that he had audiences uh, of the kings of the day that they would ask him to come and just speak just to be able to hear him speak. Because he's so smart that he wrote the majority of the books of the New Testament. In fact, he's so smart that he wrote the most difficult books of the New Testament, like this one. So difficult were they that Peter says, yeah, I've read some of them, and guess what? Some of them are really hard to understand. That's the apostle Peter, who who doesn't understand everything that he is. is. This man is smart, but here's the key. Before he came to faith in Jesus Christ, he used it for his own glory and to promote all of his own desires to be able to fulfill his own way. When he came and was born again, he took all of those things, submitted them to God, and now began to use them as a steward to promote God's purposes, and that is share the gospel and make disciples of all nations. Now, aren't we similar in our calling to him? Aren't we called to be able to go and to be able to minister and to make disciples of all nations? We absolutely are. And every single one of you have been given gifts, abilities, monies, talents, opportunities. Here's the problem. I'm going to give you three, and we're going to close with this. There's three problems that we always struggle with with much of this. One of the problems that we struggle with oftentimes is that we use all of those gifts, abilities, and talents for our own purposes, to promote our own self, to bring about our own riches for ourselves, and we don't use them. And God, isn't that the way the world lives? The world, you know, just look at the movie, the, 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 the actors and the musicians around the world, the best that they have. What do they do? They use all the talents that God has given them. They reject God all in order to be able to make a name for themselves. This is how the world lives, not how believers in Jesus Christ are to live. And so oftentimes we take this. Now, you sit there and say, well, Mike, the gifts and talents that God gives us, can I use those to be able to provide uh, for my family? Absolutely, use it. Make a billion dollars, man. But don't use it all on yourself. Understand that, yes, he used it for, to be able to provide for you, but also to be able to drive his purposes, drive his mission. You were steward of him, promoting him and his purposes, not just your own. And so we have that. And so here's the second problem we have. Second problem we have is that we belittle the gifts and talents that God has given us. This starts when you're a little kid. It's called low self-esteem, right? Somebody's faster and bigger and stronger and prettier and everything else, and we go around half our life. I, this, is, this, was, this was being a teenager, right? Always going around moping about what I don't have. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not strong enough. I'm not fast enough. 
I can't kick far enough. I can't do. Any, anybody go through that stage? Some of you are still in that stage. Yes? Uh, some of us are still in that stage. And, and so what happens is we, we sit back and we complain about those things. And, 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 and this is how we always respond. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not strong enough. I'm not smart enough. You answer that question. Answer that. Enough for what? Enough for what? And if we were really honest with each other, most of the time we would answer that question, uh, not enough to be able to have other people give us the praise and the glory that our sinful hearts so desire to have. Other people are pretty, other people are faster, other people are smarter. They're getting benefits that I'm not getting. I'm not enough. Here's the thing. Here's the, here's the way that God answers that. You have enough of everything that God had intended for you to be able to have. One day, God is going to hold you and me accountable for how we use those gifts, whether they be great or whether they be small, it doesn't matter. He expects you and I to use every last one of them to be able to propagate his name, make his name great, and for him to be able to be glorified. Third thing, I think we lack consistency. The thing that you read about Paul is this is a demonstration of Paul's life all the way through. Paul was always doing it. You know what I find in my life? And you know what you may see in your life? Sometimes you're on, sometimes you're way off. There's stages of life. People are like, man, we used to serve like crazy. If I, if I had a nickel for every time we do this, we'd build a new building, all right, in cash. Here, here it, is. it is. If I had somebody come unto me, man, we used to be so busy. We used to do so much for God. We used to be so involved. We used to do this and do that and do everything. And then when they come here, go, man, we'd be interested in having you do and be a part of some of these things. Ah, oh, man, you know, I've been there, done that, bought the T-shirt. I'm kind of done done what, what happened with consistency right and there's people who will give but they but they're not consistent in their giving the bible says in a weekly giving a proportion we're, we're giving to god consistently there's never a time vacation or, or, or new tires that all of a sudden we stop giving to the lord there's never a time we stop serving there's never a time we stop going and, and declaring the gospel is is anybody with me on this this morning it's consistency you sit there, and maybe you're one of those that sits there and goes, man, but Mike, I don't even know what to do. I, I don't have one of these great gifts. There's a lady that's in our church that, that I think really exemplifies all of this. And uh, I'm not going to give you her name because I'm not going to ruin her reward in heaven, right? But what we are going to do is here's what she does. She was trying to look for a place in our church where she could serve. And she came to the realization that, you know, basically what I do is well is I, is I clean. I clean well. So she began to look for places, and so what she does is every Tuesday morning, she comes into the church. Nobody really knows she's there. She just kind of comes in. She just makes her way back to the nursery. She begins to unpack all of her cleaning supplies, and she begins to clean every inch of that nursery every single Tuesday morning, month after month after week after week, just, fa just faithfully serving, faithfully serving, faithfully serving. To this moment, there's not a one of you who had any idea, but there's, if you have children, every one of you have been blessed by her for disinfecting that cesspool that we call the nursery, right? They don't, gi they don't give awards for cleaning. You, you don't get a, a book written after you for cleaning. You, you don't get any of that kind of stuff, but you know what you do? You're faithful in doing with what you have for the purposes of God in which you've been entrusted. And all this is based on what? The sacrifice that Jesus Christ has made for us. 
the suffering that he endured for us, the stewardship that he evidenced for us, that he was obedient in everything that God had entrusted him to. And so now what does he do? He's given him a name above every name so that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I love that last phrase in it when he says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within. He goes, man, I work my fingers to the bone. I am exhausted. And then he says struggling, which is even a deeper word. He goes, to the point of almost death. And he says, but with all his energy. He doesn't even take, he doesn't even take uh, uh, any kind of accolades or praise from anybody else. He says, the only reason I'm able to do this is because the power that dwells within me, Jesus Christ. Beautiful picture of the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning. We thank you. And as we're about to sing and we're about to take the Lord's Supper, Lord, I don't know how this service ended up going as long as it did. I am so sorry. But God, this is something that's been on my heart and been just in my heart all week. God, let us be willing and even seek to be able to suffer for righteousness sake for each other. God, let us be good stewards of all that you've entrusted us with. And let us be consistent in our serving, consistent in our giving, consistent in our attendance with one another. Be consistent in all of those things, all because of the glory of God, not to earn your favor because we've been given it. In Jesus' Jesus name we pray, amen. I'm going to ask you to stand. Go ahead and stand.